Well, if you have your Bibles, would you find again 1 Chronicles 29? That's in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 29. Matt did a wonderful job reading the text that I'll be preaching this morning. 1 Chronicles 29 is a passage that maybe you read early in the year if you're going through the Bible and reading it on a plan. Maybe it's something you've never seen. Likely, however, you've heard of David, King David, because King David fought in a famous fight. He fought against Goliath and won that battle. And I think even unchurched people, maybe you're here and this is your first time in church or first time in a while, likely you've heard that David fought Goliath. Lots of times you hear about people facing their own giants and maybe taking that passage out of context, but we have it. We also know David had a great friend, a great friend. One of the greatest friendships that you can read about is David's friendship with Jonathan and vice versa. And you can learn a great deal on friendship by watching David interact with his friend Jonathan. Also, if you know about David, what comes to your mind, and maybe even foremost, is not the great fight, the great friend, but his great failure. David, the king of Israel, committed adultery. And it seems to overshadow much of his life. Now at the end of his life, he wants to do a great feat, a great work for the Lord. And I love it. I love it. Because who doesn't like a comeback story? Who doesn't like to hear how that someone who failed has now come back? They went over the edge and they're back again. I was hoping for a comeback yesterday, but it was not to be. David now in the latter days of his life, talks about a great work and that work that he has a heart to do. And it's a great work. Look in verse one. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man before the Lord. Chapter 28, the previous chapter, David begins to address the assembly of Israel. He tells them everything that's in his heart. He says, I really have a heart to build a house for the Lord, but I can't. My son has been chosen for that task. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he has provision to fulfill the plan of God and building a palace for the Lord or a temple. He said so because he wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be housed in a proper place. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the presence of God. It was a symbol of God's glory. There needed to be an appropriate place for the Ark to be housed. He also said the temple would represent God's footstool. Uh, you know what a footstool is. That's a, that, that's a place of, of humility if you sat next to it. Every one of us kids grew up eating Thanksgiving dinner on a footstool at the kid's table. That was a place, if you're 16 and you're sitting at a footstool, you're waiting for to get to the adult table at some point. 
That is a place of humiliation. The place that David wants to build for the Lord is a place of exaltation of God and humiliation for people so that they would recognize who God is and offer to him what is appropriate, their worship, their worship. This was a needed place. Why? God deserves glory and man needs to realize his incredible separation from God and need for salvation. It's a great work. He says, I do this not only because it's a great work, but look in verse 3, First uh, Chronicles 29, I have a great devotion for God. I have a great devotion for God. It's his heart. I want with all of my heart to give this to God. He loves the Lord and he is motivated beyond that. Verse 18, we'll just touch on it. I'm not going to even read it. But he says, I want future generations to also have the same devotion. This is not just about here and now, but about those we've never met who will have a heart for God and love God. This is the mission of God to see a people, a people worship God. For David, building a temple, building this palace, the temple of God in Israel, wasn't simply about having a wonderful, wonderful building. It certainly wasn't about his reputation. And it wasn't even about the reputation of Israel. It wasn't about people being able to say, look, we have the greatest God, and to show that we do, we have the greatest temple. It was about a mission and the purposes of God. God has a plan in place, and that plan has been in place since the beginning. And even before the beginning, God has sought out a people to be his very own. This palace is not about man, but about God, so that God's purposes and plans will be, will be made known that he wants a people that are his. Peter talked about this. The apostle Peter, who wrote in uh, 1 Peter 2, said this, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, who is the living stone rejected by men, in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. You, when he says you, he's speaking to the church. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Peter says that the house of God is the people of God. Jesus looked at Peter on one occasion. I can only imagine Peter thinking about this. And Peter hearing Jesus saying, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter's thinking, how will he build it? How will he build it? How is Jesus building his church? In the way that God has planned throughout all of eternity. By redeeming sinful man to a holy God. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, the foundation of the apostles, the teaching of the word of God. So this is where you're built, and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, look at this, y'all, into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple that God has set out to build is made up of people. 
So what David knew to be a great work was not about building a building, but about fulfilling the plan of God so that God's people would be, would be redeemed. You know, we're, we're talking about doing some things as a church, and I want you to know what the things we're talking about doing, whether it's building a building or anything else we're trying to do in order to win people to Jesus, is so others might know him. Why? Because we want to be a part of a great work. And the great work is not about man. It's not about us. And it's not about any one of our own desires, right? And though God is going to bless us with lots of benefits and blessings through what we're doing, what we're doing is so others may know him. Because God has a plan and a purpose, and it's a great work. And if to be a part of a great work, then it takes a great, great vision. And David is a wonderful leader, charismatic man. I look at David, I love David. He's one of my favorite characters in all the world. I love studying the life of David because what a man of God, what a man of God. Flawed, yes, but a man after God's own heart. And this charismatic leader who probably stood head and shoulders above a lot of others that we'll ever read about in history loved his God. And I love studying about him. And he understood what it took to carry out a great work. And the first thing he said is, I'm going to have to be personally committed to this. I'm going to be personally committed to this work of God. It's a great work, and I'm going to be personally committed to it. Notice this. If you have First Chronicles chapter um, 29, look with me uh, at verse 2 and 3. David put it this way, and I'm not going to read all that he gave, but look what he said. I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. And I pause there. Because whatever translation you have, your translation may say, with all of my might or with all of my ability, it is really a reference to his heart. It doesn't get captured in the English, but in the Hebrew, I gave with all of my heart. If you give something with all of your heart, you don't have to go on to explain that was the best you could do or was with all of your might. You held nothing back. Verse Three, at the end, at the end of verse three, notice what it says. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So I am giving everything I can according to my heart. And where am I going to give it? I'm going to give it to the house of my God. So there's a tangible place where these treasures go. David said I had a heart to do this. Why? Because of my devotion to God, I'm giving to the purposes of God. Now, what we have to learn here is that David is setting an example. And that example is going to be followed by Solomon, his son. And we know this because we read about Solomon's life in the future. But he's also setting an example for everyone else around him to follow. So that he could ask a key question, and it's a question I want to ask today, and it's in verse 5. It's a question that David asked Israel, it's a question I'm sure David wrestled with himself first, and uh, then he asked the people of Israel, and I want to ask us today to consider this question. Look in verse 5. The question is, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? pretty plain, pretty clear. I don't have to break this down a whole lot, right? Here's what David's asking. Who's willing to give? You made a decision, not emotional, not prompted by man, not manipulated. You have made a decision, therefore it's willing. You're willing to give what? 
yourself to the Lord. Consecration has to do with setting myself aside, giving it to the Lord. Remember the story of a little boy who was sitting in church for the first time and the offering plate came by and he asked his mom, what are people doing? And she said, they're giving gifts to the Lord. And he said to his mama, I wish I could get in that plate. Paul told the Thessalonians, you received us and the gospel because you knew before we gave you anything, we first gave ourselves. Paul encouraged the Corinthians to give to people they never met before. He encouraged Corinthians to take up an offering so that when he got there, that offering could be given to people that they would never meet. And then he reminded them of these people in another church that gave not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty. And the reason they gave so radically, and he couldn't believe the gift that they gave to go care for poor people, is because he said they first gave themselves to the Lord. I mean, the question we've been asking over the last weeks is this. Uh, are we willing to give our hearts to the Lord? And our hearts are not that part of our emotional being. It is our will. It is where we decide, I will follow Jesus. I will surrender all. I will be consecrated to Christ. That's where it starts. And now David says here, I've consecrated myself to the Lord. And really, that's where it all starts for the believer. By being willing to surrender ourselves to the Lord. When I was a student ministry and in singles ministry, I did a lot of counseling, a lot of family counseling. And oftentimes I would be in front of someone who was making some very poor decisions and you could see the trajectory of their life. We've all been there. You're there every day. You're watching people who are wrecking their lives by the direction they've chosen to take. And you can see it. And it's not that you're that you're better, you just see that going that way. And one of the questions you want to ask is, man, can't you see what you're going? But when they're a believer and they say, I'm a follower of Christ, and you see that happening, I think a good question to ask them at that moment, if you're good friends and you're, you're, you're in that situation where you can lovingly ask them, ask them this, do you not want to be surrendered to Jesus, your Lord? Isn't that where the rubber meets the road today, y'all? Like, do you not want to be surrendered to Christ, your Lord? I mean, if the answer is, not really, I mean, where do you go with that? You really don't have anywhere you can go with that. But if someone looks at you in the eye and you love them, they love you, and they say, you know, I really do. I really do. Then a follow-up question is this, what would it take? And what's keeping you from that? That's a great question. I think it's the question that Dave puts out to the people of Israel, like, hey, do you want to be surrendered to Christ? Do you want to be surrendered to the Lord God? Then what will it take? Or what's keeping it from you being willing to do that? He puts that out. He says this, before you give your money, you've got to give yourself, before you give your stuff, your treasure, your jewelry to the house of God, which is wonderful that you do that, you have to give yourself. And listen, y'all, we are not today building a temple, praise God. We are not even building a building where we call it the house of God, right? This is, by the way, this room we're in right now is not the house of God. We've already read We're the house of God. God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. It's never been his purpose and his plan to stay in a building. We're only experiencing the presence of God here today because you and I are here and we're full of the spirit, full of God. He has said we are his temple. We're his temple. We are the temple of the spirit of the living God. 
So when David says this, he says, I'm going to do this great work. Why? Because it's not about man. there's There's a billboard around town. I've seen it from a law firm. I don't know if it's still around, still saying, but in recent days, it was like, it goes like this, um, whatever, I can't even remember the law firm, that's probably a good thing, but it's for the people, like for the people. Have you heard that? Sometimes it's for the people. David would say this, this great work is not great work because it's for the people, it's a great work because it's for God and his purpose is to redeem a people. Ligon Duncan um, he preached a sermon on this text, and so I cut and pasted part of his sermon. Uh, it's okay if you tell people you've done that. And I want to read part of it, because I think it's really good. He said, I want to stop right here and just say, this man who was never going to set foot in the temple, he's never even going to see it built. He's never going to enjoy worship and service in it. Yet the whole of his life has been a process of storing away that he may give to this project for the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, now, that, now is, is this not a model for our own Christian giving? We give. We may never ever see in this life, the way that God will use our giving in the lives of others, in the lands, or even in our own church, we may never see it. Isn't that true? How do you give that way? How do you give when I don't get a benefit from it? I may never see the blessings or the fruit. I have to first give myself to the Lord. I want to ask that question. Who is willing to offer consecrating themselves to the Lord. Secondly, what happens here is David knows not only is it about me and giving and leading, there has to be a willing cooperation of the people. Look in verse six and seven. Then the leaders of the households and the leaders of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and hundreds and officials in charge of the king's way gave willingly. And then we read what they gave. In other words, in order for this to be accomplished, this great work, it's going to take a unity, a unity. I am not thrilled about preaching concerning money. I never knew I would have to do that when I became a pastor. I thought, I'm going to be one of those guys who never talks about money. That's a fleeting thought. Because, as you well know, Jesus talked a great deal about money. In fact... Someone put it this way, stewardship is how we obtain money, how we save money, how we invest money, how we spend money, how we give money. I think it was really good that we gave our children banks on our vision night so that they could put a little money in for spending, amen, come on, a little money for saving and some money for giving. At least learn that early on. So we're helping them to become good stewards, but of the 38 parables 38 parables. Those are the stories Jesus told us about how to live our lives and these incredible stories called parables out of the 38, 16 have to do with our money. How many of you think faith is important to the Christian life? Faith. Well, you'd be right. In the New Testament, there are 500 plus verses on faith. How many believe praying is important? Praying is important. I, I, I am constantly saying, Lord, help me to be a better prayer. 500 verses in the New Testament about prayer. I would say probably important if you have 500 verses about one subject. 
There are over 2,000 verses in the New Testament about money. So what was I thinking when I thought, I'm not going to be one of those preachers that talk about money. But what I am doing is asking, like David asked, will you be consecrated to the Lord? We are, Leslie and I are like you all, we, we are, we're members of the church. And as a result, we um, are asking ourselves constantly, how do we serve? Outside of our regular responsibilities and duties, how do we serve the Lord? I want to serve the Lord. And I want to serve the Lord through my stewardship. Adrian Rogers says there's three people primarily concerned with your money today. Three people primarily concerned. Let's get the first one of the way. You're concerned with your money, right? If you say, oh, I don't care about money, man, you, you've come a long way, baby. George Foreman said, I, I'm not real concerned about money, but it does, it does calm my nerves. So we do care about money. We do care about money. But God cares about money. And I drove that home just a moment ago, but you know what else cares about money? Satan cares about your money today. Satan cares about your money. You know why? Because Satan is a slave master who likes to keep us in bondage. I was reading a book. Um, it's called Character Counts, and it's on personal accountability. And maybe some of you have read this book. It's an old book, and I have read it several times. But it's on personal accountability, and I just picked it up. I want to read it again, um, and, and for various reasons. I came to the chapter on, on, on stewardship and finances, and I have read this book several times. We've used this book in, in personal accountability. But I was like, I never realized how much this guy, Rod Hadley, had to say about personal finances. But then I, again, re- remembered his bio. He was a CFO of a parachurch organization. He had been a CPA and was still doing uh, accounting and was taking care of money in this parachurch organization, this nonprofit ministry. So he had a great deal to say about giving. He said oftentimes the people he found in his life in Christian ministry don't give because of ignorance. And that's true. Sometimes uh, there's not a budget and we don't know where our money's going. And this is a day in which you've got to know where your money's going because there are so many streaming services and so much technology and proprietary organizations that can get your money, that can add up in fees that are like 99 cent here and $15 there. And you know what I mean. So we have to have a budget. You have to have a plan on paper if it is to be a plan. And then he said, you know, oftentimes too, because of our getting in debt and over, being overwhelmed with unsecured debt, that that can create lots of problems in people. And then sometimes it's simply this. He said, it's just not being willing to be generous. And then I read this testimony from the CPA that's in this, um, this Christian organization. He said, you know, over the years, I've done people's taxes. He said, I've always been surprised when I would do someone's taxes who is a well-known believer, outspoken in their faith, and made lots of money. I'm just paraphrasing, made lots of money, but gave very little, if anything, to Christian ministry. He said, I'll give you one example. He said, there was a couple that I did their taxes for who are very well to do, but they only gave $50 a year to Christian ministry. He said, it was no surprise to me as their income increased that they constantly found themselves while their income was increasing in financial bondage. He said, however, I can tell you stories of people who made very little money, but supported Christian ministry who every year I'd watch how that they lived in such Christian freedom. How do you, you guys like freedom? Why would you read a book on accountability? I love freedom. I just like, I, I'm a pastor. So you can't go anywhere. You know, you got to be careful. You can't rub your nose. Somebody be 
putting on Instagram. That was, yeah, I mean, you can't, you as a, right, Carlos, you got to be careful as a Christian, not just a pastor. We live in a glass house. I kind of like that, actually. I kind of embrace that. I, I love that. I, I, I don't want secrets or secrecy. And as I'm, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking about bondage and, 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 the, and the shackles that, that, that financial bondage can bring, I realize that there may be some of you here today that are in that, and, and for whatever reason, and they're all different reasons why you're there, but I want you to know that God does want us to live in financial freedom. That doesn't mean necessarily he wants everyone rich, but everything in obedience to him. When there's a unity around this, there's a great joy, and that's what happened in this congregation of people who all came together in great unity around stewardship. Thirdly, because of this incredible unity, there was appropriate contributions. I'll just touch on this. Look at verse 8. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the Lord's house under the care of Jael, the Gershonite. Now, Jael must have been the accountant, the financial secretary of the state, and he was responsible for all the treasures that were coming in. So I, would just, I just wrote this in my outline. They were careful in how they gave. They were careful in how they gave. Because we are constantly being asked to give by people and by organizations, always. And I think we should take some care about how we give. And I know there's a church we should take extra care in how we receive funds and then how they're distributed through the budget. Because again, no secrets, no secrets. Now, beyond that, what they gave was costly. That was costly. Look at verse 14. The contributions were appropriate because of the ownership of God. David asked this question, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own hand we have given you. Now, two things here. David says, I think what we all know, everything belongs to God. Why should I be able to give anything back to him? It all belongs to him anyway. I'm not giving of my money, I'm giving of his. But it goes deeper than that because David actually gives thanks that he has the disposition to give to God because it is not our normal disposition to be generous. We are born self-centered not selfless. And if you ever want a good illustration of how we're born, just go to the preschool ministry on any Sunday. And you'll find for the most part, except for in rare occasions, those are my goldfish and that's my toy. And there's a great deal of mine, mine, mine and what I want, not what others around me want. So we are all born with a disposition of self-centeredness. David's just recognizing the fact that the willingness to give actually comes from God. God is the one who gives us a heart to give. And then the contributions were appropriate because of the stewardship of man, verse 15 and 16. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, and all our fathers were Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have has been provided for the building of your house for your holy name. And it it comes from your hand, and all is your own. 
Right, David recognizes some things pretty clearly here. He's like, you know, I'm not going to be here long. None of us are going to be here long. Uh, and everything we have is, is temporal. And everything we have that's temporal has been given to us by God. And therefore, I want to give it willingly. You see, stewardship touches all parts of our life. When we read about the stewardship of the temple, we recognize we're not building a temple for God. We're, we're not building a house for God. This is not apples and apples. But there are certain truths that we find here that are timeless. And what we find is that there are people who recognize God's great work is worth a great effort. The great work of God now is the great commission of reaching people for Christ. It takes all of us in unity to do that. To do this great work, we have to recognize it's a great work that we all have to recognize that we are a part of. It's not just one person, it's all of us. It can't be just David. It can't just be the leaders. It's all the congregation coming together and serving in that way. And then realizing that stewardship touches all of our lives. All of it. You know, every one of us has the same amount of time. We may not all have the same amount of money, but we all have 168 hours. 168 hours a week. And ever how much you have in those waking hours are to be given to God. Like our time belongs to God. I have 168 hours, but that time belongs to God. And I began asking myself the question, if I have 168 hours in a week, am I giving 17 hours to God a week? 16.8 hours to God. Am I giving that to God? Because when I began thinking about it, I began thinking, well, in my Bible study, uh, in the morning when I'm reading and I'm praying, I'm really actually getting from God. I mean, I'm not giving God anything. I'm actually asking God for things. I'm asking God for provisions, and I'm asking God for people, and then I'm being invested in by the Holy Spirit who's teaching me, and I'm actually consuming in the morning in my devotion. And that's fine, because God wants us to consume and eat that meat and drink that milk and just nourish on Him. That's it's not me giving. And when I come to church, I'm actually oftentimes listening and learning and getting and, and hearing. And I'm in Bible study this morning and I'm being poured into and I'm like, this is great, but I didn't really give a whole lot. I think there's a real joy in what we get in worship and what we receive in our own personal worship. But I'm asking myself the question, how much time am I giving to the Lord? I mean, for some of you, when you are thinking about your stewardship, you're thinking about, what am I going to give to the Lord? And we gave you these cards, and I have mixed emotions about them, frankly. I mean, I, I, I want us to have these cards to pray about, but here's my mixed emotion. I think sometimes we'll look at these cards and we'll see, this is just a cold calculated way to make money and raise money, and that's not it at all. But I have another one, and that's like, There'll be some people who say, well, you know what? We need, we're praying for $14 million. By the way, that's our hallelujah goal. That's like if we get $14 million, we know God has given us above and beyond what we could even ask or think, and he can give us $18 million. He can give us $28 million. And I'm going to tell you what, there are enough missions work to be done right now that that money could be allocated. There is no question about that. But we're asking God for something. And so to ask God is, God, what do you want us to do? And so what we're not asking you to do, this is what I, we're not asking you to be prompted by man. Um, we're not turning these cards in publicly. I'm not going to know what you give. Leslie and I have had to go through the same process of praying, like you guys, members of the church, God, what do you want us to do? It's funny, this past week, I, I said, okay, we gotta, we've got to come up with it. Uh, I'm thinking about lots of different things, praying through a lot of different things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this nervous question. All right, it's a nervous question. I'm going to ask Leslie what we should do, because I know whatever I have, she probably has veto power. And you know what? Um, it may not be this case for you. I'm not saying it will always be this case, but for us, the same amount was on her heart, it was on mine. 
And you know what we're also praying? This, this, this will free you up a little bit. We believe that maybe God will allow us to give more than that. Because nobody should ever fill out something like this and think, well, if I don't, if I don't make this, then I'm going to fail God. I'm going to fail God. No. I'm not going to live up to my bargain. Here's the thing. We're just praying, and then we're praying specifically. I believe in praying specifically. And if God's laid something on your heart to give, you can put it there. If he didn't, that's fine. Don't do this. Don't think, well, you know what? The church, mm, I, we're going to give a lot of more. I'm going to put it on that card, a lot of money. Like, I'm going to put 100000 We're going to give $100,000. And you're, you don't have $100,000. And you may never have $100,000. That, that's not what this is about. This is about us consecrating ourselves to the Lord and being able as a church to come together and pray through what we believe God has us to do. What is your beyond is what we're asking. And your beyond, it has a lot more to do with giving, y'all. I've been trying to pray. Listen, we prayed. I've been praying. We've, we've been seeking the Lord. I want this to come across. I want it to come across clearly. That when we ask you about what your beyond is, we're not asking you primarily, what is your financial commitment? What's on the board? If you'll read, most all of those beyonds have little to do or nothing to do with giving financially. Because for your beyond, you may actually look at what you're going to do as a family and realize, stewardship team, close your ears. We're not going to be able to give as much as we were giving. Because for some of you, your beyond is, we have a stewardship with our family. Instead of being a two-income family, we're going to become a one-income family to invest in our children. Or, you know, we have some extra rooms here, and we can foster some children. We have some room for adopting a child, and that's going to be what we're going to do. You see, what happens is we in the church are seeking God in what He is leading us to do, and we owe no one uh, explanation after that. I mean, the idea that, that all of us would give the same thing is not the, in the Bible God's calling us in different ways to give in different ways than the world does. I mean, for some of you, it's like this. You have kids coming along, and I don't know if you're like this. I, when we're, we're having our kids coming along, it's like we had to have a calendar just to know what time it was. We were going to this ball game and this field trip and this function, and then, you know, the care of the churches. I mean, we're always going somewhere. Always trying to figure out when are we going to sit around the table? Or when are we going to eat together? And it came to the point where we had to talk to our children and say, look, here's the deal. You know, you guys want to get a job and we're all about working. We're all about working hard. We have modeled that for you and, and hopefully we'll taught you that. But you're not getting a job right now. And that's not easy when you live on Fleming Island. Anybody with me right now? Just say, I don't know if y'all are asleep or with me. I'm just bearing my soul here. Uh, it's not easy when you live on Fleming Island and um, it, you want to dress a certain way and drive a certain way and go certain places and do certain things. It's a lot easier to say, yeah, go get a job. But here's what we did. We were like, okay, here's, here's your, you're involved in this. You're, you're, first of all, you're, you're involved in school, which is a full-time job. All of our kids have extracurricular activities, including sports things like that, and that was almost a full-time job. And then you're involved in ministry at church. You're serving through the church. 
you're doing music ministry and you're serving the youth ministry and children's ministry. You're actually serving, not just showing up. You're serving. And look how many hours that is. How many hours is that? And then, not on top of that, um, what about us? Like, we'd like to get together and eat every once in a while together as a family. Amen, right? And then you like hanging out with your friends. You like hanging out with your friends. We like hanging out with our friends, Dad. We like going to movies. We like, like doing the campfires. We like having them over the house. Okay. So that's five things that I just mentioned that you're very involved in. And I haven't even mentioned a job yet. So as soon as you go to work for somebody and they start managing your schedule, you're going to have to say no to family, friends, ministry, school, sports, or extracurricular activities. Every family has their own situation. God forbid we ever become legalistic and explain to people how they ought to make choices in their individual lives. But I'm telling you, we are as Christians not to follow the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world is our children need to learn to work, so let's send them off to work. All the fast food guys here right now are going, Scott, shut up. Nor am I saying it's wrong to allow your children to work as a teenager. What I'm asking is, is it possible that we're raising a generation of consumers and not contributors? In fact, let me back up and say, have we already done that? And we look to the election to fix our problems so that we might have in our nation more contributors than consumers. When stewardship starts when our children are young, to train them, you're God's creation. Gifted, you are made, you are formed by Him and for Him. And before you just go off and follow the pattern of the world, you have a stewardship to Him. I wish I had more of this when I was younger. You have a stewardship to Him. The way you do school is before God. The way you love your family is before God. And if you're a 13-year-old right now and you still have to be told to take out the garbage, come on and grow up. Because that's why some wives are scratching their head that their husband can't pick up their socks. Because somewhere along the line, we thought some grocery store or fast food chain is going to teach our kids a work ethic. But they have to learn it at home. Scott, you're straying way off the path right now. Oh, no, I'm not. Stewardship starts by realizing I am committed to him. And then committed and giving myself to him means that what? That I have responsibilities to my family so that we can teach wives to love their husband, to love and disciple their children and keep their home. And little boys, that it's responsible to care for your home and your room and yourself because one day that responsibility is going to lie on you to lead because where are we going to find leaders in the church if they can't manage their own household? I'm a little bit down the road here in that. We've already raised our kids. I wish I could preach this sermon to myself a lot longer ago. There's a stewardship that takes place. That why are we asking these kids? Why are they leaving the church? Why? They never were in it. They came and consumed. 
And it's not their fault if we haven't taught them that they are a steward of what God's given them, of their mind, of their energy, of their resources. They're a steward. And there's freedom in that, y'all. There's freedom in that. So David knows this is important. And for us, that stewardship's going to look like maybe how we give and driving somebody to an appointment they can't get to themselves or buying coffee at a coffee shop, not just to have coffee, but so that I can disciple or pour myself into somebody else or hospitality so that I can open up my home and recognize there are people around me that if I could just break some bread with them, maybe they let me break up in the word. Sometimes it's the outreach and evangelism we do and the gas we spent and going out and sharing Jesus or buying tracts so that we can have tracts to hand out, our Bibles so that we can give someone a Bible. It's our stewardship of, our, of all of our life. It touches everything, whether we give ourselves to teaching, to serving, to visiting, to writing people, to calling people, to giving ourselves first to the Lord. I hope that comes across clearly because this is, Stewardship Month is, is not about, if I say it's not about money, that wouldn't be completely accurate. It's about that. It doesn't start there. It doesn't end there. Um, It's all to the glory of God. Look at verse 9. So then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for the whole heart had been offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. God loves unity. He loves unity. He loves when the church comes together and says we're going to do the great work of God together. And he loves hilarity. I love the fact that these are They're just rejoicing in their giving. They're like bringing jewelry to God and they're rejoicing. Hey, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to give it to God. I've witnessed this over the years. I I, I told you this. I I think we've been in some sort of giving campaign since I was a teenager. Watching people give with hilarity. You say, what do you mean by that? I I mean, I I have known people. I know people right now personally who live on 10% and give 90%. It is humbling, y'all, to be around them. But they do it with hilarity. They're so freed up. They're so full of joy. We're not like the world, are we? The Bible tells us that God loves a hilarious giver, those who give in joy. And God loves people. God loves people. We're doing this because others need to know him. And what we do in our giving, what we do in our stewardship, and our serving, what we give in our gifts to the Lord is for his name's sake. For his name's sake. By, by doing that, there, there's a great joy and freedom. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that you have given us this, your word. Help us in the days to come to be faithful to you in our stewardship. And the Lord just to ask you to free us up from busy schedules, from tight budgets, and from weariness, so that, Lord, we might be good stewards of all that we have, freed up to serve you with great joy and hilarity, and we could be an example to the world around us that's discouraged and depressed. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.